Well, if you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. We have been, for some time, working our way through the Gospel of John, but we'll take a one-week hiatus from that as we think about the significance of the Reformation. And we'll be doing something a little bit different in that we're kind of, instead of just focusing on one singular passage of the Bible today, we're sort of kind of going to be preaching the whole Bible. And that's why it's going to take so long. But Psalm 96 has a great deal to say about the subject at hand. If you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's inspired and unerring and life-giving word. Psalm 96, I want to read for you the first nine verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, God, we ask your help that we would hear from your word, truth that would bless us, truth that would equip us, truth that would change us, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, as the world progressed into what is commonly known as the Middle Ages, some call them the Dark Ages, that's a bit of a misnomer, But as that period of time came upon the world, the worship of the church had become increasingly corrupt. The services themselves had become little more than priestcraft. And what I mean by priestcraft is that the services all revolved around and were built upon the supposed mystical actions of the priests themselves who presented themselves as being the mediators between the people and God. The people really had nothing to do in the services other than to accept these mystical acts from the priests. According to church doctrine, and this is still according, when I say the church, I mean the church in Rome. This was before the Protestant Reformation. Around 1100 uh, AD, there had been a split, a, a, a schism within the church, and Eastern church broke off, but, but they're doing their own thing. We're still focusing on, on the church of Rome here. And this is still the doctrine of the Church of Rome. This is still the practice of the Church of Rome. According to the doctrine of the Church, the various rites like baptism and the Eucharist were believed to be effective in and of themselves apart from any faith of the people. Now, it was nice if the people had faith, but it was wholly unnecessary. As long as they received baptism, as long as they received the Eucharist, whether or not they had faith was of little problem. 
because the, the rites in and of themselves were believed to have such mystical power that, even it, that it was even unnecessary for the people themselves to believe. The services were conducted in Latin, so nobody understood what was going on, and oftentimes that meant the priests didn't understand either. Many of them were illiterate. Most of them didn't understand Latin. And so they learned simply how to phonetically pronounce the words throughout the Mass. Preaching had been largely abandoned in part because much of the clergy were either ungodly, untrained, illiterate, or all three. The places of worship themselves had become filled with images of God, images of Mary, images of the saints in direct violation of God's word. Mary was venerated and still is as the mother of God, as the queen of heaven, as Christ's, in in the terms of the church, as Christ's co-redemptrix. That is, we are redeemed both by Jesus and by Mary. This is still the, the dogma of the church in Rome. That's why we're still Protestants. She and the saints were prayed to as heavenly intercessors. In fact, the whole cult around Mary and the saints grew up within the church. And at the center of worship stood the altar, the place where Christ was believed to be sacrificed every day in daily mass. It was believed that as the priest held up the host, that is the the wafer, the bread, as he held up the cup and uttered the words of institution, hoc est corpus meum, that the bread and the wine literally transformed into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus to be offered there once again at the altar in order to cover the people's sins. So the reformers come along. As I mentioned earlier, Jan Hus in the Czech Republic, a hundred years before Luther, saw the Mass as an idolatrous practice and called for it to end. They burned him for it. John Wycliffe as well. A hundred years later, Martin Luther, John Calvin, the other reformers, having been schooled in the scriptures, in the biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek, having studied and understood the practices and the doctrine of the first four centuries of the church, they knew all of this had to change. That the church had become more or less practitioners of false religion. And so they set themselves to the project of reformation, to the point many of them, of being excommunicated, and in some cases even imprisoned and even executed, as were the Oxford martyrs, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer. Now, if you look here at this psalm, the psalmist tells us that we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, that meant something to those original Hebrews who heard it. It doesn't mean worship the Lord in a way that feels good to you or worship the Lord in an especially awesome way or you do you in worship. It doesn't mean any of that. Actually, precisely the opposite. Holiness has an objective meaning. It means to be set apart. So worshiping the Lord in the splendor of holiness is to worship the Lord in a way that is set apart, unique, not like anything else. If you think that our worship here is strange and otherworldly and weird, that's the point. And this applies, this call to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, this applies not merely to the disposition of our hearts, but also to the very ways in which we worship. 
You see what the psalm calls for. We hear a call to come and worship, a call to gather together, a call to sing praise, to proclaim the gracious salvation of God. There's a call for sinners to repent, for God's people to bring an offering to the Lord. And in all of these ways, we give glory to God. God is not to be worshipped in the ways that the world worships its gods. Because God is holy. Israel found this out during the Exodus when they persuaded Aaron to make them gods that they could touch and feel, gods that were up close. They looked around at the nations and saw how they worshipped their gods, and they could touch their gods and see their gods. Their worship services, their worship practices were filled with sensual experiences, things that they could smell and touch, and they even added a lot of amorous activity to it as well, just to make it more attractive to the seekers. God said, I will not be worshipped like that. So he's called us to worship him in holiness. So worship is holy when it is consistent with God's holiness. And that means we have to learn from him how to worship him. Now in our own day, in contrast to the Middle Ages, the tendency among evangelicals, contemporary American evangelicals like us, is to corrupt worship not by turning it all over to the mystical practices of priests, but what our tendency is, is to reduce it to a matter of subjective experience and personal preferences. We become our own authoritative voice for determining what is holy in worship, rejecting the very notion of a binding source of authority that is outside of ourselves. In other words, the way that much of contemporary American evangelicalism worships the Lord is a perfect snapshot of American culture as it is. How we worship, we're told, doesn't matter so long as our hearts are in the right place. But that's where the problem is, isn't it? In our hearts. Our hearts, as Calvin said, are a veritable factory of idols. So don't trust your heart when it comes to determining how you worship God. If you have someone come to your home to build a deck, and you ask for the plans, and you say, you know, this is what I'd like it to be, I'd like it to be these dimensions, I'd like... And he goes, no, 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 listen, how I build, I just build according to my heart. Would you hire him? No. And yet, we would trust something as vital and of eternal significance as worship to the meanderings of our own heart? Don't tell me it's not important how we worship. If it's important how we build a deck, it's important how we worship. Worship is a holy act of honoring God according to his own prescriptions. It is not a marketing tool to attract religious consumers. And fortunately, God has not left us in the dark. He tells us what holy worship is. He tells us how we are to worship him. But we will not find a neat summary of that in one verse, or even in one chapter of the Bible, or even in one book of the Bible. 
Rather, the whole Bible tells the story of how God is to be worshipped because it is through the, the progressive revelation of Scripture that we learn to speak, as it were, the dialogue of covenant renewal upon which the church's worship is built. Now, there's, there's different ways we can summarize the pattern of worship that God gives us in his word, and what we find at the center of it all is that God is this self-revealing, speaking, covenant-keeping God. And I want you to see how rich this is, because, beloved, this is our heritage. This is our inheritance. Too often, Christians in our day settle for the watery gruel of formal but dead worship or the cheap candy of happy-clappy worship rather than the great feast of historic, biblical worship. One of the greatest structures from the medieval era is the Cologne Cathedral in Cologne, Germany. Uh, construction on the Cologne Cathedral began, uh, I believe, in the 16th, maybe the 15th century. It was completed in the 19th century. In other words, the people who began building that cathedral, as people who began all great building projects in those days, knew that they would not live to see the end of it. But they were building something that would last. There's very few structures that last 500 years and are still fully functioning. What we see more often are quick construction projects thrown up with cheap materials and bad labor. And they're not meant to be here for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren and beyond. Low-slung office buildings that have no design, no beauty, and no real lasting power. And that's the way a lot of worship is done today. Rather than the Cologne Cathedral, rooted in history, deep, rich, strong, lasting, we settle for cheap, knockoff imitations. Let's not do that. Maybe you've heard the term spiritual formation. It's a sort of synonym for what we would call discipleship, growing in Christ, being shaped and formed, as it were, by his word. Well, if you want to know where God forms us spiritually, primarily, it is right here in our gathered worship. Because it is here where we are scripted according to the great story of God's redemption. Because we're all being scripted, we're all being taught a script is being written for us and we're, we're being brought into it. Being given a script from something or someone telling us who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. And of course the world is actively scripting us. From all of its entertainment to all of the major culture makers, the world is seeking to script us, to write our story for us, to form us. The world tells us constantly its version of truth. We're being scripted every day according to the values of a world that hates Christ. And don't ever underestimate the power of that daily scripting. Paul warns us in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember your George Orwell. You know, I mean, I know you didn't read him in high school. You read the Cliff's Notes, but maybe later in adulthood you said, maybe I ought, to, I ought to read some of these books. And you go back and you read Animal Farm in 1984. Remember what was happening. Remember what the bad guys were doing 
in both of those books by Orwell. Uh, the, the pigs in Animal Farm and the party in 1984, what were they doing? They were rewriting the people's history. In fact, they were divorcing them completely from their real history and giving them a new script. Why? Because when you forget your history, you forget who you are. And I would suggest to you that it is in biblical worship, in the solemn assembly of God's people, it is here where God, by his word, every Lord's day, where he scripts us, reminds us of our history, where he forms us according to the truth. He takes us deep into our history as the covenant people of God. He reminds us that we are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith in Christ. Now that's going back a ways. So don't replace this ancient biblical path for cheap, disposable, ever-fluctuating imitations. Christian worship is a divinely initiated drama of God's gracious covenant. The promise that he made to the woman in Genesis 3.15. That same promise ratified formally with Abraham in Genesis 12.15 and 17. Reaffirmed to and through Moses to the people. Reaffirmed again with David. And fulfilled, finally, in the dying and rising of Jesus Christ. It's the everlasting covenant of grace. God speaks, and he acts, and then we respond. So it shouldn't surprise us, then, that the biblical prescriptions for worship reflect that gracious covenant pattern in which God speaks and acts, and we respond in speech and act. And so quickly, let's move through this, because I desperately want us to know why it is we do the things we do on Sunday Sunday mornings, and why we do the same thing every Sunday morning. Because it is through Christian worship that God is scripting us, that God is forming us. And it is on the Lord's day, every day, where we must come to be re-scripted according to the truth, after having been falsely formed by the world all week. First, God calls and we respond in praise. God calls and we respond in praise. Now, I'm going to say something here and I want you to be prepared because it's going to sting. And I truly do not want to add any heat to any current tensions between husbands and wives. But here we go. Gird up your loins. Are you ready? Strive to be here every Lord's Day, in your seat, before the service begins. There, I said it. (laughs) I know, especially with young children, that this is a challenge. Truly, I know. Because I used to have to watch my wife struggle through it. (laughs) Now, hey, hey! Because of what I do for a living, I always had to leave the house well before my family left. And it was really hard. It was hard for my wife to get that done. And so I know this. But I want you to do everything you can to hear the first words of our worship services because they are vitally important words. Missing the call to worship is like missing missing the opening of a movie or skipping the opening of a novel. That's what sets the stage for you. That's what puts it all in context. The call to worship 
is when the service begins. It doesn't begin when I get up to greet you. The service hasn't started yet. The first words of the worship service are God's words because he is the divine initiator. He is the divine director of our worship. The Greek word for church is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for the gathered people of God. The Greek equivalent of that word is ecclesia. It means gathered ones. Our very name recognizes that we exist as a gathered people, gathered by God's gracious initiative. And every week at the call to worship, we are reminded, oh, I'm here by God's invitation. I'm here by God's gracious call. He's in charge of this. There's a freight train of theology in the call to worship because it is the first thing we hear. If, If you've got your Bible, I want you to flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to look beginning in verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He's contrasting... The way the people gathered at Mount Sinai when they received the Mosaic law, the law through Moses, and God God constituted the people there as the nation of Israel at Sinai, and he constituted them under the rule of his holy law. And he contrasts what went on there with what goes on now because of the fulfillment of Christ. As we approach. So look at this contrast, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. He's describing what was, what was written about in, in um, uh, Exodus chapter 19 and 20 as the people came before the mountain. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, now he's speaking to us as those who trust in Christ, who live in the era of Christ's fulfillment. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now listen, under the old covenant, the worship of God's people began with sacrifice. Why? Because sins had to be dealt with. We're coming before a holy God and sins had to be dealt with. So before anything else, there had to be a sacrifice made. And through that, God was tutoring his people to teach them generation after generation that if they were to relate rightly to him, then there must be a sacrifice. The blood of an innocent must be shed on their behalf. He was preparing them for the coming of the Messiah who would die on a cross. Now we live in that age of fulfillment. And when we come before the Lord, we do not come with a sacrifice, do we? When we come before the Lord, we come as people whose sins have already been covered. That's what we are saying. That's what we are acknowledging in the call to worship. 
Do you see that? In the call to worship, we are acknowledging primarily two things, that God is the initiator of our worship, and that through the blood of Christ, he has made the way for us to come to him. You'll notice we don't have an altar. By God's grace, we'll never have an altar, because the sacrifice has been made. What we have is a table of fellowship. And the call to worship binds all of that truth together. God speaks. He calls us. And then what do we do? We respond in praise. It's a covenantal pattern. God initiates. We as his people respond. Many of the liturgies that were written during the Reformation included what is called, it's, it's, a, it's a Latin word, the votum. It, it means something along the lines of a confession of faith. And typically the votum was taken through Psalm 124. So the call to worship would be given, and then the people would answer back, Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And then they'd sing. Just like we do. We respond with sung praise. And the Reformers peppered their liturgies with the singing of the people. Luther was very musical. In Geneva, Calvin had the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer set to music so that the people would sing those passages in their gatherings. Along with that, of course, they would sing the Psalms. They would sing selected passages from the New Testament. And they would sing hymns. And so we, too, just as the Scriptures call for, and just as the Reformers recovered, sing throughout our services. And and just a side note, men, sing. I see some of you singing. I want to hear. And you say, Todd, I'm not a good singer. Well, do you know how many bad singers there are in this church? Come on. It's all right. It's all right. Men sing. Why? Because this is a part of the covenantal pattern. God speaks. God calls. And we sing his praise. There are some things that are too good to to be just merely spoken. They have to be sung. Secondly, we confess and God pardons. We confess and God pardons pardons. Do you know why we confess our sins? Think about it. It's really simple. It's not a a trick question. Why do we confess our sins, Christians? Because we still sin. That's why we confess our sins. And, And why do we confess our sins? Why do we have a public, corporate confession of sin? Because we see that happening so often in the Bible. When the Bible speaks of worship, almost always... It's addressing the corporate worship of God's people. And so often, the models of confession of sin that were given in Scripture are corporate confessions of sin. We didn't come along and just think it would be a good idea to confess our sins corporately. We're doing it because we see it practiced in the Bible. And it was practiced in the early church and it was practiced by the Reformers. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the great scribe Ezra, came into possession of the book of the law, the writing of Moses. It had been neglected by the people, literally hidden away and lost for years. And he begins to read it, and his heart breaks over the sins of his people. And so he goes, we're told in Nehemiah 8, he goes up to a high place before all of the people, and they are assembled, and he begins to read the law of God. And they respond by falling to their faces weeping and repenting of their sin together. Similarly, under King Josiah, the priest Hezekiah 
literally digs out of the wall of a building the book of the law of Moses. Once again, it had been neglected, forgotten, put away by God's people. And now he recovers it and he reads it and King Josiah reads it and he brings it before the people and proclaims it before the people. And there we read in 2 Kings 22 that they responded by confession and repentance and tears before the Lord. Isaiah responded to the glorious vision of God with confession of sin and repentance. When he was confronted with his own sin, David repented publicly. He even wrote it down. We're still reading his repentance in Psalm 51. The reformers understood that Christians had no need to go to a priest for absolution. Rather, having freely confessed their sins together, they could then hear God's word of pardon together. In the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, we experience what Luther called the great exchange. Jesus bears our guilt, and we are covered with his righteousness. What a great privilege and a blessing to rehearse and repeat that glorious truth every Lord's Day. One of the things we learn about the temple when it was first constructed and at its dedication, the high priest prayed that it would be a place for all of the nations to stream into, to worship God, to abandon their idols and come before the Lord and worship Him. And so everything that happened there was intended to be a public testimony, even their corporate repentance, so that hopefully the nations would see the repentance of the people of God and be struck in their own hearts. When we repent of our sins corporately, when we confess our sins corporately in here, we are giving witness to every skeptic who might be with us and wondering why we're doing these things. And so our corporate confession of sin is not only something for us, but it is for those who still do not yet believe, to show them that at the heart of it, who we are is a forgiven people. Thirdly, we pray and God hears. We pray and God hears. So having been assured of and comforted by God's gracious words of pardon, we are now free to come into the Holy of Holies, as it were, and to pray together. Calvin wrote this, quote, We can go boldly into the Holy of Holies to intercede for others as well as ourselves with the confidence that our Father hears us and delights in satisfying us with good things. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that the very first church led by those apostles in the city of Jerusalem after Pentecost, that they were devoted, quote, to the prayers. They would pray together corporately. And when we're told they were dedicated to the prayers, I do believe we are meant to see that some of those prayers were corporate prayers written down thoughtfully that the people would pray together. Can that be abused? Can that become dull and just rote? Yes, but anything good can. So we pray, and again in this covenantal dialogue, when we pray, what does God do? God hears Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all the people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and 
quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray because we believe that God hears. We pray for each other. We come to know more and more the needs that each of us have. Why? Because when we pray, God hears. God hears and he responds in the way that is good and right. Fourthly, we give and God provides. We give and God provides. Giving generously has always been a part of the constituted, gathered worship of God's people. It's an act of defiance against our idolatry of money, isn't it? When we give, God is training our hearts that money is not God, money is not ultimate, but He is. Now, we no longer bring a sacrifice offering because those were were offerings that were brought for the covering of sin. We don't bring those kinds of offerings because Christ has already been sacrificed for us. Rather, what we bring in our tithes and offerings are what we would call thank offerings. Offerings that are in response to grace received. And just as God established in the days of the temple, the work of the ministers and the needs of the people would be addressed, provided for, by the tithes and offerings of the people of God. So that in serving one another through our giving of tithes and offerings, we are trusting that the Lord will take what we give and use it for the good of others as he sees fit. It's not enough that we would just simply say to brothers and sisters in this room who are in need, bless you and then go on our way. God uses means to provide. And the means that he typically uses to provide for the needs of his people, and in many cases for the needs of people beyond our walls, is the very ordinary but faithful giving of his people. We give, and then through that, God provides. We have a mercy fund because of the tithing of the people in this church. We have pastors and staff to serve us because of the tithing of the people of this church. We have a building that has lights that operate and even air conditioning on some Sundays. <laughs> that was it's funny when I joke like that. We have this. We we have all of this on this hill here because of the faithful tithing of God's people. That's how God provides. 5 God speaks, we listen. God speaks, we listen. God is a speaking God. He is a self-revealing God. And He reveals Himself by His Word. He creates by His Word. He judges by His Word. He saves and delivers by His Word. He guides us and grows us and blesses us chiefly through His Word. What did Jesus pray in John 17, 17? Sanctify them by Your truth, O Lord. Your Word is truth. From time to time, God would gather his people, and this became a regular thing from Sinai forward. He brought them and he constituted them under his word. He spoke to them through the preaching of his appointed servants. Now, let's just admit something right up front. Preaching is weird. There's nowhere else you go for preaching, right? Nowhere. 
In fact, we're told constantly that we need to keep it as brief as possible because people don't have attention spans anymore. But you know, here's the deal. Preaching's always been weird. There's never been a time where people would say, you know what I want more than a physical, sensual experience or more than something I can see? What I really want are words. Nobody's ever said that. That's not new for us. Again, just go back to Exodus. Moses had gone up to the mountain to get what? Words. The people said this is really boring. And so they had a great idea. Why don't we worship God with something we can see? Because words are boring. And that didn't go well. God's always constituted his people under the proclamation of his word. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' sermons on the Ten Commandments to the people of God. Did you know that? Deuteronomy means deuteronomos, the second giving of the law. It's when Moses took the Ten Commandments and preached them to the people of God. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. In Nehemiah 8, we see this biblical pattern of God's word being read and preached to the people. In fact, this is what what Nehemiah writes in, in Nehemiah 8. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. They were, they were Baptists. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place, so they read distinctly from the book. And they gave the sense, they explained what it meant, in other words, and helped them to understand it. This is what God's been doing ever since, to grow and to form his people. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul affirms the weakness and the foolishness of preaching. It's always been considered weak. But God has determined that the faith of his people will come by way of hearing the word of God. Romans 10. How will they hear, Paul asks? How will they hear unless someone goes and preaches to them, he writes. Jesus was a preacher. The apostles were preachers. The church, we're told in Acts chapter 2, was, quote, devoted to the apostles' teaching. The prophet Ezekiel had this marvelous vision. God had taken him up in this vision and showed him a valley full of bones. And these weren't ooey-gooey bones. These, these had been in that valley in the desert so long, they were dry. I mean, they were dead. Okay? And what did God say to the prophet in his vision? Preach to the bones. Preach to the bones. And he did. And he heard a sound of movement in the valley as he declared the word of God. And those bones came together and were connected by sinews and, 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 and muscle and flesh all came around. And before he knew it, there was a vast army innumerable before him, the holy people of God. And in that moment, God gave a picture of what is happening. 
in the proclamation of his word, he brings life to his people. And so God speaks. We listen and receive. Six, real quick. God promises we believe. And what I'm referring to here are the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the people were devoted, quote, to the breaking of bread. That's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Likewise, baptism instituted by Jesus, Matthew chapter 28, was the way in which people were included into the visible church. So the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are what we might call visible sermons in a faith that is particularly spare of things you can touch since experiences, the Lord does give us this. The Lord gives us water and baptism, and he gives us bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. And through those simple, ordinary elements, he makes his promises to us once again. What is the promise behind baptism? What is the promise behind the Lord's Supper? That all who believe in Christ will have their sins forgiven. That's the promise behind these visible sermons in the water and in the bread and in the wine. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. God promises us that in baptism. He promises us that in the Lord's Supper. And what do we do in response? We believe. We believe. And isn't this the gospel pattern? This is the gospel that's at at the heart of Christian worship. That we have a promising God who saves all who believe in him. Finally, God blesses and we depart. The last thing you hear in the Christian worship service is the benediction or the word of blessing, the good word. The benediction isn't just a formal way of saying, okay, service is over. That's not it. In the benediction, we have one last opportunity to hear God's word before we depart and return to the world. So God has the first word in our worship. He has the word that declares his law and gospel to us, and so too does he have the final word. And it is a word of blessing. And the reason it's a word of blessing is because Jesus took our curse. The reason why you get to hear God's blessing every Lord's day as you turn once again and go to the world that's trying to script you The reason why the last thing you hear is God's word of blessing is, first of all, because this is the pattern we see in the Bible. I mean, think about it. Even the letters from the apostles so often, because they're going to be read in the gathered assembly of the churches, what's one of the last things they hear? The benediction. And so too it is in Christian worship. The benediction is for us, because on the cross, Christ received the Father's malediction, the curse as he bore our sins. The Lord bless you and keep you. That old benediction from the high priest Aaron, we still hear today and we hear it uniquely through Christ, don't we? That we can hear the Lord bless you and keep you because on the cross the son heard from his father, I must now curse you and turn away from you. And you will see not my face, but you will see my back as I turn from you as you bear the sins of the people. And in that moment, the Father did not lift up his countenance upon the Son to give him peace, but he put him to grief on the cross so that he could give us peace.
How appropriate for a people saved by grace to have God's words of gracious blessing linger in our hearts and minds as we return to the world on mission for Christ. Because that's how we depart to the world, isn't it? Aren't we to depart to the world having now been equipped with the Word of God, having now been scripted once again by the Gospel? Don't we now depart and return to the world on Gospel mission? That's how we go. That we would labor to see as many souls as possible here in their own lives by faith in Christ, the benediction of our God. This is why we do what we do, people. It wasn't invented in the 16th century, but it's the very covenantal pattern we see in the Bible. And I want you to experience all of its depths and its richness and its joy and its solemnity and its happiness. I want us to experience that every Lord's Day together. Can we do that? Amen. Let's pray. Now our Father and our God, We ask your blessings upon your word so that it would take root in our hearts. God, we thank you for the privilege of worship. And may we, by your grace, be your faithful worshipers for your glory alone. In Christ we pray. Amen.